Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our mission at Grace Bible Fellowship is to magnify the glory of the triune God in Christ Jesus by proclaiming God's word to advance the gospel in our lives and the world. We base who we are and what we do on the good news of Jesus. If you would like to find more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, you can visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. I'm so thankful you've come here to listen to God's Word proclaimed as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. invite you to take your copies of the scripture this morning and open to the book of John, John chapter 1. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, to you we come this morning, knowing our Savior, whose eyes are like a flame of fire, who sees with accuracy our spiritual condition. May He look into our hearts today, and may He change our hearts through His Word and by the power of His Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Do you come to church to see something? In fact, if you take a moment and reflect upon your life this past week, What's the greatest thing that you saw this week? We say that, don't we? When we see something that's that's great, that really was a sight to see. It was a spectacle. How much of our phones are filled up with pictures that we've taken of sights that we've seen? What was the greatest thing that you saw this week? And... Do you ever think about coming to church to see something? In fact, if someone were to ask you today, what did you see at church, how would you respond to that? What would you say to that person? What is it that I saw at church today? God brings his people together. Do you ever see anything? Sometimes when we see a friend that we haven't seen for a while, we might say something like, you really are a sight for sore eyes. 
What does that mean? Why do we say that? Seeing that person's presence, seeing them. It's like our eyes are ailing, our eyes are sore, and seeing them brings refreshment, brings great joy to our lives and to our eyes because we have seen them. Maybe we say something like, you really brightened my day. Are your eyes sore this morning? Are they ailing? And I'm not necessarily talking about your physical eyes, but even your spiritual eyes. Are they ailing? Do they need healing? Do they need refreshment? That you would say, I need to see something because these sore eyes are sorer than ever. You know that soreness in your bones, don't you sometimes? The soreness where sometimes just even getting out of a chair, you can't get out of a chair without making some kind of noise. It's not like a word, it's just like a, oh. Your eyes ever like that? (laughs) Going throughout life, sore, failing, weak. I need something that I can say, oh, you really are a sight for sore eyes. This is why Jesus came to earth. He came to earth not only to give sight to the blind, giving sight both to those who were physically blind, but also giving sight to those who were spiritually blind, but he also came specifically to be seen. That is the whole purpose of the incarnation, to be seen. He is the, what, image of the invisible God. But who is it that sees Jesus? Who is it that really sees Jesus? It's those who have eyes of faith. It's those who see even spiritually. And so maybe I ask you again, what did you come to church to see today? And as you're around your lunch tables this morning or this afternoon, maybe you would ask one another, what did you see at church today? This is what John begins in his gospel to press upon our hearts we end what's known as the prologue. The first 18 verses of John is known as this prologue, and John has been pressing upon us the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He is the agent of creation. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything that was made. He is the source of life, and He is the source of light. And at the very beginning, John, as it were, catapults us into the heights and the greatness of the Word and who that is. We see the problem then, as we did last week, 
He was in the world, the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He even came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. They didn't get him. They didn't see him for who he really was. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And John is pressing upon us, Jesus, who is this Jesus? And he continues to press that upon us this morning in these five verses. So who is this Jesus? Well, remember, this Jesus is the word that is God, but this Jesus is also truly man. On the back of your bulletin there are some blanks. There's no uh, specific outline this morning, so you have to fill in all the blanks. Right? It's just one big blank this morning for you, but I think you can do it. You can follow along. But that's our first point this morning. Jesus is truly man. He is truly God, yes, but he is also truly man. And we need both of these truths side by side. We hold both of these truths because this is precisely what we need in order to be saved. The Word knew what he was doing in becoming flesh. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't the last resort to save us. It wasn't done reluctantly or with the hopes that it might all work out in the end. The very redemptive plan of God determined before the foundation of the world was that the Word would become flesh. And our problem is that verse doesn't shock us the way that it should. The Word became flesh? What do we think when we read those words? Get out the Christmas decorations. Let's sing happy birthday to Jesus. Is that what it means for the word to become flesh? What is John doing? So think about this for a moment. The pre-existent word, the word that existed before there was anything else, the eternal word, the word that was in fellowship and unity and perfect harmony and closeness with God, the word that is truly God, the word that is creative and yet uncreated, the word that is the source of life and light, became flesh. No, the word must not be tainted. The word must not be brought low. The word must not be humiliated in this way. To think that the word would so humble himself, condescend to us, and willingly, freely clothe himself with the weakness and frailty that is human nature and human flesh. He became like us in every respect, yet without sin. The incarnation, the word became flesh, is not scandalous to us because we have failed to grasp the gloriousness of the pre-existent word. In fact, think about what it says in Isaiah chapter 40 for a moment. Verse 6 of Isaiah 40, a voice says cry, and I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. 
Isn't this what we know of as well? In our own bodies, the flesh is failing. The glory is fading. But here, here the word became flesh. His glory never fades. His glory never diminishes. When the word became flesh, God became man. Here is the word, the supreme revelation of God now taking on flesh. To think about it in one way, the audible word becomes visible flesh. And what happens when the word becomes flesh? Well, the first thing is, the word does not cease to be the word. Becoming flesh in no way changed the word. He is still the word of God. So when it says the word became flesh, doesn't mean that the word stopped existing. The word is still there, always has been there, and never changes. But also, does not mean that a transformation has happened. Became indicates identification, not transformation. It means more than the word appeared in the sphere of human flesh. Rather, such identification means that all we know of the word as the one who is the source of light and light, the one who is eternal, all these are exclusively and absolutely applied to the man Jesus. John perfectly and poignantly tells us Jesus is truly God and truly man, and we're to marvel at this wondrous truth, for it's necessary for our salvation. It's crucial for God to be able to rescue our hearts that God became man. And later in the book of John, Pilate will bring Jesus out, and he will say, Behold the man. What John is doing from the very beginning of his gospel is he's saying to us, yes, behold the man. Because Jesus is truly God and truly man. Number two, Jesus is the true tabernacle. Jesus is the true tabernacle. And the word became flesh and what? Dwelt among us. If you look back at the first four verses of John chapter 1, we see that what's critical to understand those verses is Genesis, right? In the beginning, we hear that also from the book of Genesis. Now in these verses, 14 through 18, the book of Exodus becomes the key for understanding these verses. John draws our minds back to this idea of the tabernacle when he says, and dwelt among us. That word dwelt there can be translated as pitched his tent or tabernacle. In fact, maybe your translation says that, and tabernacled among us. It reminds us of that tent that was pitched in the wilderness where God said he would dwell with his people. So turn back for a moment to the book of Exodus, chapter 25, verse 8. Exodus 25, verse 8. 
and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Or if you go forward a few chapters to Exodus 29, verses 45 and 46. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God, and they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. John reminds us that this is how God used to dwell with his people. He lived in a tent or later a temple, but no more. Now God has chosen to dwell among his people in a more personal, close, and intimate way in the word become flesh. You no longer need the tabernacle. You no longer need the temple. Now God has taken up residence with his people in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. The tabernacle erected in the desert and the temple built in Jerusalem were never the final and full plan of how God would dwell with his people. They were mere shadows. They were only pointers to something even someone who is better. Jesus is the final fulfillment of God dwelling with his people. That which was, which was lost in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden because of their sin, that which for so long was mankind's problem. How is it that God will dwell again with man? How will that be restored? How will our sin that separates us from God ever be dealt with? And God remedies that through sending His Son. The way in which God dwells with us is through the Word become flesh, Jesus Christ. Just as God dwelling among His people was a reminder that He had brought them out of the land of Egypt, how much greater now the Word become flesh who leads us out of our bondage to sin and death. He is dwelling in the midst of His people and that we would say He is our Lord and our God. How is it though, if you remember the tabernacle or the temple, how is it though that the people knew that God was dwelling with them when they looked at the tabernacle or the temple. They knew because they saw something there, and particularly they saw God's glory. And that's the third point for us this morning. Jesus is the visible manifestation of God's glory. This is what happens with the completion of the tabernacle and then later the temple. So, like in Exodus 40, verses 35, 34 and 35, excuse me. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and what? And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Or like 1 Kings chapter 8. Verses 10 and 11. And when the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. 
Here are these pictures that are given to us of the glory of the Lord filling the tabernacle, filling the temple. But now it's no longer a glory cloud that one needs, but the glory of God that's been revealed in a clearer and final form in Jesus Christ. Do you see this here in verse 14? And we have seen His glory. The Word of God became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. We've seen something. Think about that for a moment. Flesh is not the means by which the glory of God is concealed in Jesus, but it is the means by which it is revealed before the eyes of all. The Word became flesh. Well, now the glory must not be there. But what does John say? No, the very opposite. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen God's glory. It was there. It was before us. It is more than a mere seeing that John says here. It's a gazing upon. It is a beholding of the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ. And there will be those that we will see in the book of John who, even though Jesus is before them, they refuse to look upon his glory. They refuse to acknowledge that he is the glory of God. But for those who are among Jesus, who have put their faith in him, the glory of God shines brightly and gloriously. And with the coming of Jesus Christ, there is the assurance that God is dwelling among them because they see his glory. The glory they see, however, what is it like? We see this as we go on here. It's a glory full, or or sorry, let's go back. Glory as of the only Son, from the Father. Maybe your scriptures read that this is the only begotten Son from the Father. The idea of only or only begotten speaks to the fact that Jesus is unique. He is the special object of God the Father's love. He is the one and only Son. He is the best love, the beloved Son of God. So this idea that He is the only Son from the Father, speaks to the uniqueness of this glory. This is not like any other glory. You can only see this kind of glory in the Son. But what else is it like? It's also full of grace and truth. John does something very deliberate here. Remember what he's doing. He's drawing on the book of Exodus. And we read about it this morning. Remember Moses on Mount Sinai had the audacity to say to the Lord, please show me your glory. And the Lord responded. What did the Lord say? He would make all of his what? His goodness pass by. Goodness that was announced in the proclamation of the Lord's name. How is the supreme goodness of the Lord expressed? Do you remember that in Exodus 34, 6? He is the one abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. 
those correlate to John's words right here. So steadfast love and faithfulness in Exodus 34, 6 correlates to what John says that this glory is full of grace and truth. Grace there correlating to that steadfast love, that covenantal love that God would put upon his people that they did not deserve, that they did not merit in any way. A love that never ended, that never failed, that never gave up on them. And, and faithfulness, which even there in Exodus 34, 6, has this ring of truth. That God's faithfulness is first most expressed towards his own character, so God will never deny himself. And also God's faithfulness in his promises. He will always keep his promises. And so think about what, what John is doing here for a moment. He says, we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Remember the grace and truth? Remember the glory that was proclaimed there on Mount Sinai? The glory is even greater and clearer now. Jesus is the complete expression of God's goodness as the fullness of grace and truth. The Lord's character of covenantal love and faithfulness, that is the substance of God's glory, is expressed in the Word becoming flesh. <laughs> and then there's this little parentheses right here in the middle we're kind of like it seems out of place so John bore witness about him and cried out this was he of whom I said he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me why does John say that because Jesus Christ is supreme and his glory is supreme usually in their day and their culture the one who came before was elevated right so if you were older in age, you were elevated. We still have some of that in our own culture, right? You elevate those who are old. But John says, he who comes after me, so he was born after John the Baptist was born, ranks before me. He is greater than me. Why? Because he was before me. He existed before I existed. What does that mean? Again, this one, Jesus Christ, is eternal. He is God, and he is supreme. He ranks supreme. He has priority over everything and everyone. This is the supremacy of Christ's glory as he is showing it and expressing it to these who have seen him, his disciples, and to his followers. This is the grace and truth that we all know. Look at it, what it says here. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. The fullness of Christ's grace and truth. It's not, it's not something that we know intellectually. Like, can you give a definition of grace and truth? That's good. That's helpful. What happens when you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? You know it in a way that transcends just intellectually knowing it. 
you've experienced His grace and His truth, His faithfulness to His own character and to His promises. Something that's affected your heart and your life. And there's this difficult saying here at the very end. People have wrestled with this. What does this mean? Grace upon grace. It could also be translated grace instead of grace. Helpfully, John explains it, doesn't he, right after that. For, that's an explanation word, for or because. So, we, for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Okay, John, explain that to me. What does that mean? For the law, what? For the law was given through Moses. So I, I think what, what John is saying here, the law was given through Moses. That is a sign of God's grace. It's a sign that God is being gracious to his people. In fact, the Apostle Paul picks up on this and he says that through the law came a knowledge of sin. That was a good thing. That was God's grace that he would give us a knowledge of our sin to see that we are a needy people. So this law, look at what it says very carefully, was given through Moses. So what was Moses doing? He's acting as a conduit through which this grace was coming to the people and through that grace then, with that, tied with that, is the glory of God. The law was then good. But Jesus is better. Grace and truth, this expression of God's goodness that's heralding his glory is coming through Jesus. It's not, notice, given through Jesus like Moses was a conduit. So Jesus isn't the conduit of this grace. He is the source of the grace. He is the source of the expression of God's goodness. He is the source of glory. And then, if this is the case, shouldn't we see these expressions also in the church? Not as the source in and of ourselves, but as those who follow Jesus Christ the fullness of grace and truth, shouldn't we see these expressions then amongst ourselves, grace and truth, in the body of Christ? Yes. Because grace and truth, as a display of God's glory, can never be separated from Christ. Finally, and quickly, Jesus is the explanation of God. This is the fourth point. Jesus is the explanation of God. No one has ever seen God. In fact, that's what the Lord said to Moses, right? In Exodus 33, 20. No one can see the Lord, no one can see God and live. So no one has ever seen God, but the only God, again, referring to Jesus Christ, and notice back in verse 17, this is the first time Jesus' name is expressly made known in the book of John. This Jesus, the only God, 
who is at the Father's right side. Or we could also say it this way, who is in the Father's bosom. There is this closeness, there is this intimacy. When you gathered around a table in John's day, you would recline at table. You would kind of lay around the table. And do you remember John's position with Jesus? John was one of whom it said that he laid his head on Jesus' breast around the table. There was a closeness there. There was an intimacy there. Here, as John is expressing this, who is at the Father's side, there is a closeness. There is an intimacy. Why? Because Jesus and the Father are one. And then what does Jesus do? He makes God the Father known. He explains God. In fact, later in John 14, remember what, Jesus, remember what Philip says to Jesus? Jesus, show us the Father, and that will be enough. Let us see the Father, and that will be enough. Remember what Jesus says? If you've, what, seen me, guess what? You've seen the Father. Again, he is the image of the invisible God. He is the, don't freak out, he is the exegete and the exegesis of God. What does that mean? Exegete is someone who does explaining. Exegesis is the explanation. So hopefully, I'm trying to exegete God's word. I'm trying to explain God's word to you this morning. But I'm just the exegete. I'm not the exegesis. I'm not the actual explanation. I'm just the one trying to explain it. But Jesus is both the explainer and the explanation himself because he is God, because he is one with God the Father. The whole purpose then of the word becoming flesh is to be seen. And so I wonder, do we ever say, today I went to church and I saw the glory of God in Jesus Christ? Or do we ever hide Christ? Do we ever obscure Christ? We, as those who long to see Jesus face to face, and one day the word promises that we will, one day we will be like him because we will finally and fully see him as he truly is. We who long to see him, who look forward to that day, do we even catch glimpses of him now? Catch glimpses of him as we gather together as his church. Catch glimpses of him as we read his word. Interestingly, God says to Moses, for no one can see my face and live. But Jesus comes, and all who look to him, guess what happens? They live. The thing that is impossible for man to do in and of themselves, to look at God and live, now they look at Jesus and they live. 
Have you looked to Jesus in faith and repentance and trust? Have you looked to him and so lived? And if you have, let us then gather every Lord's Day and behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ and be satisfied and be thankful and rejoice. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word today. I pray that you would use it in our lives. I pray that we would see Jesus, that we all with unveiled face behold the glory of God in the face and in the fullness of Jesus Christ, the one who is the fullness of grace and truth, And so that in looking to him, we might live. I pray that we would have seen that today. And I pray that we would continue to see that until that day when we finally and fully see him for who he truly is. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.